Turn those machines back on! Turn those machines back on! I, 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 body blows and headshots, knees wobbling, dark thoughts, is this capitulation? I think not, but why not? Prices rising nonstop, sentiment took another drop, crypto did a belly flop, oil stocks back on top, a gallon of gas, yeah, that's a five spot. Yo, Fed, let me see that dot plot. You hiking this week? That's a lock, but too much, too fast means more asset price compression. An economic spiral, another recession, too little, too late, more runaway inflation. Or maybe we get stuck with dreaded stagflation. We gotta prepare no matter how it goes, adjust our weightings, reconfigure our flows, rebuild our portfolio, set them up for success. Recline and realign on the Investopedia Express. Last week's sell-off kind of slapped different. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Not that kind of Kevin Bacon different, but pretty painful. The S&P 500 fell more than 5% on Thursday and Friday, capping off the second worst week of the year for the index and the ninth weekly drop in 10. The last time the index fell 1% or more for two consecutive days was back in March of 2020, and the world was in a very uncertain place at that time. The problem now is that there's a fair amount of certainty about the global economy and the outlook for the next few years and investors don't like the smell of what's cooking. Futures are deep in the red early Monday morning to start the week. That higher-than-expected print on consumer prices for May that dropped on Friday sent investors scrambling into the relative safety of government bonds. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury topped 3.16% as prices tumbled. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond is on pace for its worst year in history with a price loss of 12.8%. It's well outpacing the 11.1% decline in 2009. It is highly unusual, my friends, that we see stocks falling and bond prices tanking at the same time. In fact, the last eight times the S&P 500 was down in a calendar year, bonds finish the year higher, cushioning the blow. Hence the old importance of the 60-40 portfolio. 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, bro. That's what we were taught. But it's been a very different story thus far in 2022 with stocks and bonds both down over 10%. That has never happened. The 60-40 portfolio is down 14.8% on pace for its worst year since 2008. We know the enemies. Inflation's at a 40-year-plus high and getting higher. Global GDP is slowing. Central banks are raising interest rates and tightening money supply, all except for China. Corporate profits are slowing, except for the energy sector, where they are gushing. The dollar is strengthening. That puts a crimp on U.S. companies that sell goods abroad. And there is geopolitical uncertainty, starting with Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine, but popping up in other hot spots around the world as well. You add climate disasters into the equation, and the pot gets a little hotter. Let's dig into those inflation numbers for a hot minute. Consumer prices jumped 8.6% year-over-year to the highest level since December of 1981. Back then, just before President Ronald Reagan took off, the federal funds rate was 13%. Today, it's below 1%. That is terrifying. The biggest contributors to the consumer price spike? Gasoline, of course, up over 70% in just a year. About 70% of the gas price spike has come since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The price today is over $5 a gallon on average across the United States. The price a year ago, $3.08. The price the day Russia invaded Ukraine, $3.54. More drivers are running out of gas on the road because they can't afford to fill their tanks. AAA fielded 50,787 out-of-gas calls in April, a 32% jump from last year. Where else is the prices spiking? Groceries up 11.9% year-over-year. That's the biggest spike since 1979. Chicken is up more than 17% alone, the biggest price spike ever for that piece of produce. Restaurants 
up 9%, the largest increase ever. Fuel oil up 107%. Never have we seen a year-over-year increase of that size. Electricity up 12%. That's the largest since 2006. Rents up more than 5% nationwide. Largest increase since 1987. And airfares, if you've flown lately, you know what I'm talking about. They're up 37.8%, the largest increase year-over-year since 1980. This is where we spend our money. And our dollars, ironically, feel pretty weak compared to the US dollar index. Plus, Consumer goods companies are using one of their favorite tricks when their profit margins get squeezed, shrinkflation. And that's not the phenomenon that occurs when we jump into an ice cold pool. It's less product, same packaging. A recent study by ASU's business school across consumer products found glaring examples of shrinkflation in everything from toilet paper to cereal. Get used to it. Consumer sentiment, as you might imagine, is really weak. The University of Michigan has been measuring the sentiment of U.S. consumers since 1952. It has never been lower than it is today. It's lower than it was during the turbulent 1960s, the inflation-ridden 1970s, the crash of 1987, the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2000, 9-11, the great financial crisis, the onset of the pandemic, never lower than it is right now. Add it up. Mortgage demand is at its lowest since 2001. Consumer confidence is at an all-time low. Credit card debt is up 20% in April alone. Inflation at 8.6% is the highest it's been since 1981. The average gas price is up above 5 bucks a barrel. And 70% of technology is in a bear market, and that's where a lot of us are invested. So, does it matter if we're in a recession or not? People feel like we're already in one, especially lower-income people with no real assets or investments. If you are making $50,000 or less a year, $1 out of every 10 you spend right now is going to gasoline. The rest is going to rising rent, filling the fridge, keeping the house warm or cool, and just keeping the lights on. That sanguine consumer sentiment is correlating pretty closely with investor sentiment these days. According to Investopedia's latest sentiment survey of our daily newsletter readers, 57% of respondents say they are worried about recent market events, with 25% of them saying they are very worried. The steep sell-off in stocks, especially popular tech and consumer stable stocks has also eroded trust in the stock market with 46% of our respondents saying they trust the stock market less than they did six months ago, an 8% rise from April. 47% of respondents expect the stock market to trade lower in the next six months with more than one third expecting a decline of 10% or more from current levels. After last week's drubbing, we're only about 5% away from that additional drop. All of these concerns are prompting our readers, who are individual investors, to play it safer with their investments, according to our survey, or simply stay put. 47% of respondents say they are playing it safer, seeking refuge in cash, bonds, or low-volatility ETFs. That's up 9% since April. 43% of respondents say they are staying the course with their investment allocations, hoping the tide will turn. Which one of these things are you doing? Whatever it is you're doing, do it with some perspective. We need it more than ever right now. And consider this if we're heading into a recession or even if we're already in one. We don't know until about six months after we come out of one anyway, given the way the NBER looks at it. During the last 12 recessions, the stock market was lower during half of those periods with the worst losses occurring in the 2008-2009 recession. The S&P 500 fell 35% during that era. But for every one of those 12 recessions, the S&P 500 was substantially higher the following year, at least 10% higher, but often a lot more. In 11 of those last 12 recessions, the S&P 500 was also substantially higher three and five years after each one of them. Markets revert to the mean, in and out of economic cycles. That's yet another reason why we don't sell into the fear. We reposition, we readjust, but we stay invested. 
One more sip of half-full perspective, and this is from our pal Ben Carlson at Animal Spirits. To put the incredible gains of the last few years into context, a 20% decline in the S&P 500 from here would bring us back to 2021 levels. A 30% decline would bring us back to 2020 levels. A 40 to 60% decline would bring us back to 2019 levels. A 70% decline would bring us back to 2017 levels. Which one of those scenarios do you think is the most likely and do you have the time and the risk tolerance to stay invested with your choice? This is what matters. Let's get set up for a critical week ahead. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the Federal Reserve officials are set to convene at the two-day June policy meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, wrapping up with an interest rate decision Wednesday afternoon. Most Fed watchers are expecting the central bank to raise the benchmark federal funds rate by 50 basis points to a range of between 1.25% and 1.5%. But following last week's hot CPI report, the odds for a 75 basis point rate hike jumped to 20% from just 5%. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been pretty transparent about the size and pace of upcoming hikes, so a 75 basis point hike would be very out of character. Expect three more rate hikes after this one at the following FOMC meetings this year until we get to a range of between 2.75% and 3%. But we need to listen very carefully to the words that Powell and the FOMC use in the press release and in the press conference following the announcement on Wednesday. If the Fed gives us a tip that curbing inflation is beyond its control and that it is looking into extraordinary measures, hold your hats. On Wednesday, the U.S. Census Bureau will release retail sales for the month of May. Retail sales are expected to have risen 0.2% month over month in May, decelerating sharply from that 0.9% increase in April. On an annual basis, retail sales have risen 8.2% in April and are projected to decelerate just a little bit to a 7.1% gain in May. Consumer spending has remained relatively strong over the recent months, despite the impact of surging prices on consumer budgets and purchasing power. However, given recent sentiment and gas prices above 5 bucks a barrel, demand destruction is starting to play out in real estate and in the retail markets. We learned last week that Target, Walmart, and several other big box retailers are bloated with unsold inventory, and that's weighing heavily on their profit margins. Shares of Target are down 35% this year, shares of Walmart down 15%. On Tuesday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will release the May update to its producer price index, PPI we call that. That tracks wholesale inflation. PPI inflation is expected to decelerate slightly to a 10.9% annual rate after an 11% rise in April. The PPI inflation rate, which measures inflation from the perspective of manufacturers or service suppliers, has exceeded CPI inflation over recent months. So if producers are paying more for raw goods, they're passing those costs right on down the line to us. And let's keep our eyes on some technical levels this week, especially the S&P 500. Remember that 4,000 level we talked about last week? Well, we breached it, and the benchmark index is now at 3,900, down nearly 19% for the year. Will there be support at these levels, or does the market have another leg down? No pressure. Hang in there this week. Recession or no recession, that seems to be the predominant question circling around capital markets and the global economy these days. And the more we talk about it, the more it feels like we're conjuring it into being, or maybe I'm just being paranoid. Recessions used to be characterized by two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, but these days we refer to it as a downturn across a variety of leading economic indicators that goes on for several quarters. No matter how you classify it, we know it when we're in one, and we don't know it until it's over and we've cleared it. Seema Shah has studied more than a few economic cycles and market behavior in her career. She is the chief global strategist at Principal Global Investors, where she oversees global market strategy and advises the investment team at Principal on asset allocation. She is also our very special guest this week 
on The Express. Welcome, Seema. Hi, Caleb. Thanks for having me here. In one of your recent notes, you say the threat of a near-term recession is pretty low, but it increases when we look out to the next 12 to 24-month period. That's not great news for investors, even though markets don't always decline during recessions. But why does the future look so dim when the present seems to be pretty complicated too? It's a really important thing that we're talking about at the moment, because what I'm finding is investors are taking a lot of comfort from the current strength of the economy, but they're ignoring that monetary policy it typically works with a six to 24 month lag. So whatever happening today with the Fed is not going to be showing up in the economy for several months, several quarters still. Now, we also look at consumer spending that is particularly strong and that has been held up by the cushion of excess savings provided during the COVID crisis. We look at the labor market, the labor market unemployment rate close to the pre-COVID lows, an extremely tight, really, really strong labor demand. But you fast forward 12 months from now and consumers are going to be struggling because time and inflation is going to eat away at a lot of that excess savings, especially for your lower wealth thresholds of the, of the economy. Uh, you look at the labor market, and so many of these companies are struggling with the kind of margin pressures from higher costs. And you can start to see that temporary help, which is usually your main leading indicator for the labor market, is starting to decline. So 12 months from now, end of 2023, things are going to look very different from a number of economic indicators. They're suffering from price inflation across the goods that they buy. They're suffering from wage inflation for the people that they employ. And you said it, we're already seeing some softness, especially in the retail sector, a lot of temporary employees there. You're seeing some softness in the labor market here in the US, probably worse around the world. You got principal managers some $580 billion here in the US on behalf of clients. What's their predominant concern right now? Is it inflation? Is it wealth preservation? Who are these clients and what do they care most about? Yeah, so the thing that seems to come up in every single conversation that we have at the moment, which is absolutely right to be questioning this, is in this kind of inflationary environment, when you know that the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world are going to be hiking really aggressively, how on earth can markets continue to outperform? Is this the time to go in cash? Or is there any opportunity within the market? And like, it's really important. It, this is not the time to cash out. This is the time to become more clever with your investing. So more selectivity and more understanding of where you are allocating. Because we can't hide away from this. Things are going to get tougher. In the last 10 years, because the Federal Reserve and other central banks have been providing so much liquidity into the market, companies haven't had to do too much to do well. Like investors haven't also had to do too much to do very well. But as you start to see this retrenchment of liquidity from the markets, as central banks start to tighten, as you see kind of slightly weaker growth, and as you have inflation higher than what we've been seeing over the last couple of decades, your traditional asset classes will be more challenging. And we have to generally get more used to lower returns and higher volatility. So this is a very different investing environment than we've been used to over the last decade. Yeah, we know we're not going back to the way things were for the past 10 to 12 years, that zero to 0.25% interest rate level from the Fed. We know inflation is obviously higher than the below 2% where it was for so many years, stuck there for so many years. The game has changed. The sector performance has changed as well. Do you think, given what's happening in commodities and in fossil fuels, we're in the beginning of a super cycle for commodities? Uh, look, this is this is the key question right now. One of the other questions, which is again very much related to inflation, is commodities are up, but have we missed the opportunity to get into the market? Have we kind of missed the major rally? The commodity cycle that we're seeing is not just because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis and what we're seeing in the awful events there. It has it has propped up commodity prices even more, but there has been one has been improved demand because of the post-COVID recovery. 
But more particularly, there is a structural shortage of so many commodities because of decades of underinvestment. So this commodity cycle that we're seeing, it is not going to go anywhere soon. Uh, we will continue to see upward pressure on a lot of these commodity prices going further. They may not rise at the same pace that we've seen over the last six to 12 months, but are they going to go back down? Will you see all prices back down to the $75, $50 a barrel in the near future? It's pretty unlikely. So we have to take into account the, the current demand events, but also more importantly, the structural supply shortages facing this market. And from that perspective, commodities, real assets in general, is actually where we see the most opportunity for investors right now. And that's so different from where we've been because we're coming out of sort of the knowledge economy era. We've seen these big tech companies, super high margins, intense growth, a lot of that fueled by low interest rates and also a very intense appetite on the part of consumers. And now we're in this period where commodities become the thing and you're seeing it and you see it in the retailers here in the US, what economists like you like to call the bullwhip effect, right? They don't have the goods that consumers want. They weren't prepared for it. If you see that at the retail level, take that all the way back to the producer level. The folks that are actually producing these commodities, they weren't prepared for it either, were they? They weren't. And we have seen, and we've seen this look from a, a lot of the earnings uh, results over the last couple of weeks is so many of these companies have unfortunately mismanaged a lot of their inventories. Right? They had not necessarily foreseen the fact that supply chains would resolve. They overordered and they assumed, most importantly, that consumers would continue to pay the prices they'd be able to pass on these price increases to consumers. That is unfortunately not the case anymore. So you are starting to see these firms struggle. But I do want to come back to tech, though. It has had a particularly challenging five or six months. We've undone a lot of the gains that we've seen since the COVID recovery. Does that mean that this is the end for tech? Well, it depends which part of technology you're looking at. The nonprofit tech, that is absolutely challenged because they have no way at the moment of proving that the future is going to be particularly strong. So we almost set that aside. But then you think about the big, the mega cap tech. This is your Amazons, your Googles, kind of all of those really, really big names that we've become accustomed to. Microsoft, they have a secular growth story. Do we think going forward that as companies think about where are they going to invest going forward over not just the next two years, we're talking about the next five, 10, 20 years, do we think they're going to stop focusing on, on technology? I mean, absolutely not. We know that technology is the future for everything. So we have to think about that technology may be challenged in the near future, but this is a secular theme, especially for investors. And if there is one bit of advice I'd give anyone is look away from the day-to-day -day headlines of things that may be concerning. You've got to look at the fundamentals and you've got to seek out where are your long-term themes. And that's what's going to carry a lot of these companies over the threshold over the next couple of difficult quarters. So hard for investors to do that when our animal spirits are having us focus on the headlines that are blaring at us from every which way. And we're coming off of, you know, three years of intense gains here in the US and the capital markets here, only to find in the past, you know, six to seven months, a very, very weak market and a complete turnaround where value has led, growth has definitely slipped into the back of the bus here. And it's a very challenging environment because investors in the US are so weighted into tech and the big indexes are so heavily tech skewed. I know you look at the global economic picture when you do your research and there aren't that many countries in great economic shape right now. We know inflation hurts the poorer countries the most, but where from your perspective, as you look at the world, are the real danger zones in the world today? Well, for me, the main danger zone is gonna be emerging markets. You know, you're going to hear there's commodity stream theme throughout this because we think that food prices, another commodity is going to be really under significant pressure going forward. 
we're going to see food prices rising even more than they already have. And which countries are the most exposed to this? It's really a lot of these emerging markets. Um, some of them are what we, you know, the term frontier markets. We don't typically see a lot of retail investors looking at. One of the danger zones, though, is you have frontier markets. The problems from frontier markets typically ripple into emerging markets. So once emerging markets are hurt, then there is sometimes that repercussion onto developed markets as well. So we have to be a little bit careful again about emerging markets. Not all of them. There are going to be some pockets. I'll give you an example of China, which can do well. But there will be the majority of emerging markets that we do think will be very challenged over the next quarter or so. Yeah, you got to pick your countries very carefully. You got to pick your companies very carefully. It's a time for really thoughtful investing and good guidance, which is something I know you believe a lot in. So we're not going back to the days of that hyper growth that characterized the past decade. We talked about that, but we're starting to hear the drumbeat now about stagflation. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen brought it up recently. We've seen that in Japan. We've seen that in the US back in the 1970s. That is not a good investing environment. Is that where this is headed? So I shy a little bit away from the usual term of stagflation. You know, there's a lot of different definitions of it. Let me term it like this. We are going into an environment where inflation needs to be brought down and it will come down. When you have the Fed hiking as much as it is, it will slowly, slowly come down. But alongside it, you will see slowing growth because when the Fed has to bring inflation down from such heights, really the only remedy to high inflation is essentially going to be a recession. So that is what we're looking at. Inflation will come down, but along the way, it will be brought down by slowing growth. Okay, good to know. You have these counterfactors. You got the inflation that's pretty stubbornly high. And if you look at consumer projections, they're looking at 5.3% inflation over the next 12 months, and then somewhere in the 3 to 4% for the next few years. If you look at the GDP now tracker, that's got it kind of in that same range, maybe a little bit higher in some instances. But how can we really know when we don't know how certain things are going to unfold, namely Russia, Ukraine, but also the intense demand coming for commodities and especially the fossil fuel sector right now? How can you really pinpoint where inflation is going to be other than surveying it and seeing where it's been historically? It's a good question. When I think we look at the inflation, you know, we have to start thinking about not just focusing on the hard numbers that we see, the CPI numbers that come out month, month after month. This is about really understanding what the companies, what the CEOs around are telling us. What are the kind of pressures that they are facing? They're seeing real-time evidence. And that's going to be the guide for us on how inflation is performing. Is it coming down quickly or is it going to go down very, very slowly, which is what we suspect will be the case. And if you listen to what a lot of the CEOs are saying from Target to Walmart, even the big tech companies, they don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. So that's why they're dealing with their inventory issues now, taking the write downs if they have to. You got to listen to what they say on their conference calls. And that's really been a theme that keeps coming back. So what are the top three forward-looking economic indicators you're focused on for the next 12 months that could give us a little bit more market direction, that could give us a sense of where this is going to head? Are there two or three that are just top of mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think investors, of course, we'll, everyone's going to be watching the labor market, but the key one to watch is temporary employment. And the reason I say that is typically you see the payrolls numbers. That is one of the last things to fall. Employers usually cut job postings and they cut temporary help. Those are the first things to go. So that's giving you an indication of how quickly the labor market is starting to slow. The second thing is, and this is a little bit more difficult because there's no specific data point that we'd be watching, but you just have to watch the consumer. How resilient is a consumer and how much longer can this consumer stay resilient? For that, I just watched the earnings calls. We're going to hear from guidance. What are the companies telling us about the ability to pass on some of these higher prices to consumers? So those to me are the two key things. And then if I could just add in a market indicator, it's going to be financial conditions. 
financial conditions, if it comes down quick enough, that may be enough to see the Fed slightly slow down the hiking pace, which would add an element of optimism back into the market. But unfortunately, the financial conditions, they need to tighten significantly first before the Fed takes it fit off the brake. Well, I love your metaphor that you wrote about, about the Federal Reserve liking it to a high diver that is diving from higher and higher platforms, attempting not to make a splash. Can the Fed engineer a soft landing or a splashless dive as we get higher and higher and the stakes get higher? Yeah, the Fed has attempted it many times in the past, and they have a very, very uh, unsuccessful hit rate. We would expect there to be a significant slowdown. We are expecting recession to hit in early 2024. You know, if you look back on time, every time the unemployment rate has gone up by more than 1%, it has been accompanied by a recession. And you think about what the Fed is trying to achieve. They are looking to see the labor market untighten. So you start to see that increase in supply and a drop back in demand. And that typically means a rise in unemployment rate. So history is telling us that the Fed could achieve it, but the chances of it are very, very slim. You got a lot of investors. You got a lot of money under management there. A lot of folks do this passively or they work with your advisors or they work with your teams to put together the portfolios. But what is the overall strategy? Call it for folks that are sort of passively invested in the market. They don't like stock picking. How do you navigate a period like this going for the next 18 months to two years? The first bit of advice I have is like, it's not timing the market. Timing the market, timing the bottoms, timing the tops is extremely difficult. The key thing that you need to focus on is time in the market. Pick out those secular themes. You know, we, as we talked about before, commodities is key going here. So we think about real assets. We think about stuff like infrastructure, which actually in an inflationary environment, and I should say the next decade, we're not going to see inflation back down to the kind of one, one and a half percent level that we've seen over the last decade. This is a higher inflation environment going forward. And in that situation, you need to have exposure to stuff which is almost inflation insensitive. And that's where stuff like infrastructure comes in. Commodities, of course, as we've been talking about as well. And then within the equity space, there is a call to be a little bit diversified, but almost not take a very significant hit on either the growth or the value place. So we are relatively equally balanced across growth and across value. The thing that we try and look for is where are the sectors? If you can't look at companies, that's fine, but look at the sectors at least, where typically have the greatest balance sheet strength. Which are the ones that have the least leverage? Which are the ones that have the more persistent, stable cash flow? Those are typically the places that will outperform in a more challenging economic environment. So there are spaces, but they just need to be sought out. Good time to know your fundamentals and a good time to know how to read a balance sheet or follow folks like Seema Shah, who does it for a living. You know we're a site built on our investing, finance, and econ terms. You're a trained economist. What's your favorite investing term and why? The term that's most resonating for me is, and we may hear about this as an abbreviated term, it's FTV, Fundamentals, Technicals, Valuations. For any kind of investment, if you're thinking about companies, you think about sectors, you're thinking about regions, even thinking about asset classes, it comes back to those fundamentals, technicals, valuations. Which ones are telling you that this is an opportunity to get in? And which ones are telling you that this is a time to maybe reduce your exposure? We love that. You put three terms into one. We've never had that before. We're going to give you that. And that is yours alone. Seema Shah, the Chief Global Strategist at Principal Global Investors. Thanks so much for joining The Express. Thank you, Kaidu. 
It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes from Matthew Gum, who sent us an email with his suggestion. Matthew suggests demand destruction this week, and he says he listens to many financial podcasts, and this term keeps coming up. Well, the Express is here to make sense of it for you. We spoke about it earlier on the show, but let's hit up my favorite website for the actual definition of demand destruction. Well, according to Investopedia, in economics, demand destruction refers to a permanent or sustained decline in the demand for certain goods in response to persistent high prices or limited supply. Sounds kind of familiar. Because of persistent high prices, consumers may decide it's not worth purchasing as much of that good or seek out alternatives as substitutes. Demand destruction is most often associated with the demand for crude oil or other commodities. We're seeing demand destruction right now. It's happening in the U.S. housing market given high prices and high mortgage rates, and we're starting to see it in the retail gasoline market, believe it or not. Phillips for gasoline actually fell 5% in the past six weeks as drivers didn't fill their tanks all the way, they carpooled, or they simply drove less. In the retail sector, we're seeing demand destruction from that unwanted inventory that is sitting in the warehouses of Target, Walmart, Home Depot, Best Buy, and others. Indoor and outdoor furniture, high-priced electronics, sweatpants, and leisure wear, that was so 2020 and 2021. But now nobody wants it. Demand destruction at work. Good suggestion, Matthew. Investopedia's finest socks are coming your way in the mail. We're going to let the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen take us out this week. Inflation is her number one problem, and she's been appointed to solve it. Here's Secretary Yellen testifying to the Senate Finance Committee last week on how we got to this point of, quote, unacceptably high levels of inflation. We currently face macroeconomic challenges, including unacceptable levels of inflation, as well as the headwinds associated with the disruptions caused by the pandemic's effect on supply chains and the effects of supply-side disturbances to oil and food markets resulting from Russia's war in Ukraine. To dampen inflationary pressures without undermining the strength of the labor market, an appropriate budgetary stance is needed to complement monetary policy actions by the Federal Reserve. Well, what are those appropriate steps? It's kind of unclear what the Biden administration can do about runaway inflation. Release more oil? Tax relief? The next moves it makes are kind of important to the American people. And just in case anyone forgot, it's a midterm election year. No pressure. Thanks for riding with us this week, as always, and special thanks to Seema Shah for joining the show. We're taking the Express on the road again next week, back up to the mountains of Colorado for a little food and wine. It's going to be delicious and very interesting, so be sure to get back on the train next week. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. <music>